0: He's a wizard. He doesn't look like much of a wizard to me. I never did anything to you. Why do you want to cut my throat? It's nothing personal. I have to mix your blood with the mortar for the castle. This old fool tells me it's the only way to make the building stand. It's easy to die, knowing you'll die for your country. I may first offer some advice. Your majesty's in danger of seeming a little stupid.
1: Alas for the Red Dragon, for its end is near. The Red Dragon represents the people of Britain, who will be overrun by the White One. For Britain's mountains and valleys shall be levelled, and the streams in its valleys shall run with blood. A Galfridian welcome to here read this. My name's Ash, and today we are talking about the Prophecies of Merlin, as written by Geoffrey of Monmouth in the 12th century. Geoffrey of Monmouth's Merlin predicts to King Vortigern in the 5th century the troubles that lie ahead for Britain. It's not the earliest depiction of the famous wizard, but it remains the most influential, combining for the first time in the name of Merlin some of his essential characteristics, the gift of prophecy, a supernatural origin, and a connection to King Arthur. The character of Merlin is a strange brew, stirred with scraps of historical record, half-truths, and hokum. He is presented here under a borrowed name, interacting with real medieval figures and commanding a great influence upon the shape of British history. His prophecies, as written by Geoffrey, were first circulated on their own, but were also included in the narrative of his epic History of the Kings of Britain, a tale spanning 2,000 years, starting with Brutus, great-grandson of Aeneas. It is Brutus who became the first king of an island he names after himself, Britain. And so a dense, blood-soaked saga begins, a chronicle of legend and history co-mingled, taken by some as truth, others, such as D.R. Howlett, calling it a spectacularly successful fraud, which generated more imaginative literature than any other text of the entire Middle Ages. Join us today as we trace some of the ancient sources for Merlin, visit the turbulent times of 12th century Britain, and try to decode some of the allusions in the prophecies in Geoffrey of Monmouth's text. Just park the time machine here, will you? <laughs> we'll uh, we'll come back for it later, There's nothing's ever gone wrong with just dumping it.
0: No, I would leave it right in the middle of this this field. All those, all, yeah. all the peasants we're looking at it earlier can can play with it for a bit.
1: All the rustic, slightly um, trollish peasants. Um, so we're in uh, sort of eleven thirty ish, and we are meeting for the first time the character of Merlin with these um, these these prophecies. Um, Merlin, the, the
0: two thousand and eight BBC TV series.
1: <laughs> well, I was just going to say, let's just talk about Merlin as a as a character. What do you think is the definitive version of the character?
0: Uh it's the version now. that was one of the the character helpers on the original Microsoft Word who would come and help you with your Word documents. I think that was Was he actually called Merlin? Yeah, the little wizard man was called Merlin. Oh, I did I, I forgot he was actually called Merlin. That's I, the I first was, that's the first chronological appearance of um Merlin. Did he surf uh, yes, he did. Well, he surfed surf- on a parchment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's all I remember from school IT classes. <laughs> well, this
1: is a great start. Um, <laughs> the first known mention of Merlin dates back to the Welsh annals of the 10th century. Myriden the Wild was a mad seer roaming the woods of northern Britain. Before Geoffrey of Monmouth even enters the picture, legend and history combine in the creation of Myriden, who was said to have been present at a real battle, the Battle of Armterid, now called Arthurit in the year 573. Mirrodin was the advisor and bard to a king who lost his life in the battle, King Gwendolyn. Apologies if I'm butchering him a second time. After the battle, Mirrodin lost his mind and took himself off into the Caledonian forests. There he lived as a wild man and received the gift of prophecy. The tale is familiar to the reader of uh, chivalric romance, and the example of the deranged hero driven into the woods is one that Don Quixote was very keen to imitate. Mirrodin's story is also similar to an even earlier story of a northerner called Lilacan, who likewise descended into madness and shrubbery. Like Lilacan, Mirrodin is based on a mixture of legend and history. He may have possessed supernatural gifts, but the Welsh poets held him as a genuine bard.
0: A lot of nicking of of Welsh folklore. that gets sort of weaved into English folklore.
1: Mirrodin? Geoffrey is, is said to have changed the name of Meridian to Merlin in order to get away from the uh, French association of mad. Sure. Shit. Because um, you can't have a wizard called Shittian. Um. <laughs> well, you could. <laughs> the second source of Geoffrey's Merlin is found in the history of Britain written by the Welsh monk Nennius in the 9th century. Historia Britonum is the key source in Geoffrey's own Historia Regum Britanniae. In Nennius, there is the legendary founding of Britain by refugees of the Trojan War, and the first fleeting reference to King Arthur. However, there is no character with the name of Merlin. Instead, Geoffrey appropriated the story of a character called Ambrosius Aurelianus. In Nennius' history, this figure is the son of a Roman consul and opposes the British ruler Vortigern. As a young man, Ambrosius intimidates Vortigern in the famous story of the Red and White Dragons. At this point in the 5th century, the warlord Vortigern was the leader of Britain, and in his attempts to defend his position, had recruited the support of Saxon mercenaries. They were singularly effective, and repelled the troublesome Picts and marauding Irish. Unfortunately, the Saxons didn't take it well when, once they had done their job, they were asked to leave. Instead, they sent for more of their Germanic brethren, who came piling into the island in droves. Vortigern was criticised by historians such as Gildas, who referred to him as a usurper. Bede calls him a tyrant, but does allow him the title of King of the British. From then on, the portrayal of Vortigern descends into pantomime villainy. A near-contemporary of Geoffrey of Monmouth's, William of Malmesbury, described him as A man calculated neither for the field nor the council, but wholly given up to the lusts of the flesh, the slave of every vice, a character of insatiable avarice, ungovernable pride, and polluted by his lusts. To complete the picture, he had defiled his own daughter, who was lured into the participation of such a crime by the hope of sharing his kingdom, and she had borne him a son. Just on a quick tangent, in 1796, a play was discovered featuring Vortigern called Vortigern and Rowena. It was believed by many to have been written by William Shakespeare, but later turned out to be a forgery written by William Henry Ireland. If you're a Patreon listener, you might recall the story of Ireland from our episode on literary frauds. Now, Geoffrey of Monmouth took the story of the dragons found in Nennius and embellished the tale, compounding the Welsh Myrodin and the Romano-British Ambrosius into the character he called Ambrosius Merlin, or Ambrosius Melinus. This lumping together of Welsh and Roman names is somewhat confusing and is further complicated by Geoffrey also including Ambrosius Aurelianus too and making him King Arthur's uncle. For some reason, Merlin keeps his Roman name from Nennius without the Roman father that put it there. Well, there's the other... Um...
0: There's the other version of him when he's, he's sort of half, half devil, where he's a, a well, human woman and an incubus.
1: An incubus, yeah. His, his father was said to be an incubus. Merlin, in Geoffrey of Monmouth's rendition, is a cambion, the offspring of an incubus. This is related to King Vortigern in frank terms by Merlin's mother. I did not have relations with any man to make me bear this child. I know only this, that, when I was in our private apartments with my sister nuns, someone used to come to me in the form of a most handsome young man. He would often hold me tightly in his arms and kiss me. When he had been some little time with me, he would disappear so that I could no longer see him. Many times, too, when I was sitting alone, he would talk with me without becoming visible. And when he came to see me in this way, he would often make love with me, as a man would do. And in that way, he made me pregnant. You must decide in your wisdom, my lord, who was the father of this lad, for apart from what I have told, I have never had relations with a man." An advisor of Vortigern supports her story, telling his king that he has read of such stuff happening in Apuleius. Between the moon and the earth live spirits, which we call incubus demons. These have partly the nature of men and partly that of angels and when they wish, they assume mortal shapes and have intercourse with women. Many commentators have compared Merlin to Christ, another prophet conceived supernaturally. And it should be said that in Geoffrey's text, Merlin goes on to perform miracles, notably overseeing the erecting of Stonehenge, and conniving the conception of Arthur out of wedlock by disguising his father, Uther Pendragon, as Lady Igraine's husband.
0: Arthurian legend has been popular for millennia now. Mm. You know, it's almost a thousand years of Arthur at this point. You know, everybody has a sort of a version of a story of, you know, a legendary king or somebody who's come to right all wrongs or he was prophesized, mm. you know, all this stuff. Yeah, it's a very particular, it's almost a, it's not a, it's not just one story anymore. It is, it's one of the, one of the however many stories that have always existed. The Arthur's just the name we give to it.
1: Geoffrey was born at the end of the 11th century and died in 1154 or 55. According to Lewis Thorpe, everything in his thinly sketched biography points to his having been a Welshman, or perhaps a Breton, born in Wales. In his writings, he signs himself Galfridus Monumentensis, Geoffrey of Monmouth, connecting him to Monmouth in Wales. His first appearance on record is in an 1129 charter in Oxford, where perhaps in a nod to his historical field of interest, he signs himself off as Galfrido Arthur. Geoffrey seems to have stayed in Oxford, probably as a canon, until 1151, after which he was elected to the bishopric of St Asaph. But it was at Oxford that he wrote his Historia Regum Britanniae, finishing it in around 1136. In his dedication, Geoffrey praises Bede and Gildas, but says their histories contain the only references to ancient kings of Britain he has been able to read. For further tales of these kings' deeds, one must rely on oral tradition. According to JSB Tatlock, in Geoffrey's time the lack of accounts of British history was notorious so it can be counted as fortunate that a certain archdeacon at Oxford called Walter was good enough to hand Geoffrey a certain very ancient book. This contained a history of all the kings of Britain from Brutus to Cadwallader. From this text, written in the British language, which Lewis Thorpe takes to mean early Welsh, Geoffrey embarks on a translation into Latin, the language of administration, learning and literature. A portion of the initial popularity of the text must be attributed to the quality of Geoffrey's Latin. 500 years later, Milton thought it far too good to have come from the 12th century. Geoffrey was clearly well-read, and in his text there are references to Cicero, Bede, Apuleius, Lucan, and many more. The certain very ancient text has never been identified, and commentators such as Andrew Sanders have argued that it is more likely that he adapted oral traditions, amplifying them with a great deal of material from his own singularly fertile imagination. By the end of his history, Geoffrey shows us a Britain left in the hands of the Saxons in the year 689. And in Geoffrey's own time, the fate of Britain seemed likewise open to speculation. In 1120, a drunken crew wrecked their ship in the Channel. This resulted in the drowning of William, the only legitimate son of Henry I. When Captain Thomas Fitzstephen came up for air and was informed of the death of the King's son, he chose to let himself drown rather than suffer the consequences. The White Ship disaster triggered a succession crisis that would lead to two decades of infighting, referred to as the Anarchy. It began in 1135, round about the same time Geoffrey was finishing his history, and would only have just been resolved when Geoffrey died. Henry I had many illegitimate children, one of whom, Robert of Gloucester, is the first dedicatee of Geoffrey of Monmouth's text. Robert never challenged directly for the throne, but was caught up in the civil war to come between Henry's daughter, Matilda, and his nephew, Stephen. After the drowning of his son, Henry I had tried to avert the succession crisis by naming his daughter Matilda as his heir. This was not popular among his subjects, particularly due to Matilda's marriage to another Geoffrey, one who will cast a shadow over many of the books and plays we discuss over the coming weeks. This was Geoffrey of Anjou. Geoffrey was popularly considered to share with Merlin a common ancestor, for his family were said to be the offspring of the devil, the story going that an earlier Countess of Anjou was the daughter of Satan himself. After Matilda married into the Anjou line, the magnates who had sworn an oath to accept her as their queen following the death of Henry I, began to assert, in the words of William of Malmesbury, as though by some prophetic spirit, that after his death they would fail to keep their oath. This growing tension meant that waiting for the death of Henry I, as R. H. C. Davis said, must have been like waiting for the bomb. On the 1st of December 1135, Henry died and the bomb was dropped. It was not Matilda, but Stephen, his nephew, who received the crown. Despite the fact that he was not the chosen heir, the English accepted him. He was well-liked, brave, good-humoured, and crucially, not a woman, and not married to Geoffrey of Anjou. But Matilda wasn't giving up without a fight, and so commenced a 20-year dispute between the grandchildren of William the Conqueror. Interestingly, in Geoffrey of Monmouth's dedication, Robert of Gloucester was described as a pillar to the new king's reign, but three years later he would renounce his loyalty to Stephen and join forces with Matilda. Robert and Stephen would eventually end up being traded in a prisoner exchange. Adding to the anarchy, Stephen was threatened by Scottish invasions and Welsh rebellions. But in 1153, he managed finally to end the royal infighting by naming Henry of Anjou, Matilda's son, as his successor. The following year, he succumbed to that common fate of kings, the sudden and convenient illness, and on the 19th of December, Henry II was crowned. His father, Geoffrey of Anjou, liked to sport a yellow sprig of broom blossom in his hat, after which he was known by another name, Geoffrey Plantagenet. In the words of Peter Ackroyd, from this little sprig grew a great dynasty that endured for more than 300 years. All of the kings of England, from Henry II to Richard III, were Plantagenet, until they were supplanted by the Tudors.
0: Uh, Merlin's, uh, Merlin's a, piece. He's a wizard, isn't
1: he? Changes a lot. Sometimes he's a much sort of... Um, darker character a bit of a villain other times Uh, he's kind
0: of like more of a prophet than a wizard
1: yeah so in this he's very much a a prophet he uh gives this um galfridian um prophecy Hmm. about the white dragon and the red dragon i remember reading about the white dragon and the red dragon as a kid about arthurian legend and the fight between these two uh dragons but it wasn't really tied to a prophecy of merlin's it was more of a um there wasn't um the same sense of uh, it representing two nations, the Saxons and the uh, Brits. It is during the story of Vortigern and the Red and White Dragon that Merlin is introduced in the chapter of Geoffrey's Historia preceding the Prophecies. Vortigern is advised by his magicians to construct a tower in which he can defend himself from his enemies. Despite his hiring the country's best masons, their efforts are repeatedly swallowed up by the earth. Vortigern once again consults his magicians, who tell him he better sprinkle the blood of a fatherless lad on the plot. That should sort it out. His men dutifully fetch Merlin, and here comes the moment where his mother informs Vortigern of how she became pregnant. The young enchanter then surprises the king and his magicians by mocking their counsel, and telling Vortigern his advisers have lied to him. He demands of the terrified magicians that they tell him what lies beneath the foundations of Vortigern's proposed tower, but they can offer no reply. It falls to Merlin to inform Vortigern that beneath the foundation lies a pool, and once they drain the pool they will find two hollow stones, and within the stones, two dragons. He is duly proven to be correct, and an amazed Vortigern plunks himself on the bank of the drained pool and watches the dragons rouse and fight each other. He asks Merlin what the meaning of all this is, at which point the young prophet bursts into tears. He falls into a prophetic trance, and what follows is an extraordinary series of cryptic predictions. First of all, he tells Vortigern that the red dragon represents the people of Britain, and its loss against the white dragon signifies the British being overrun by the Saxons. The predictions that follow reference tribes of people, place names, and animals functioning as pseudonyms. Passages are sometimes quite transparent, such as, men will become drunk with the wine which is offered to them. They will turn their backs on heaven and fix their eyes on the earth. The stars will avert their gaze from these men and alter their accustomed course. The harvest will dry up through the stars' anger and all moisture from the sky will cease. Then other passages are somewhat more opaque. A hedgehog loaded with apples shall rebuild the town and attracted by the smell of these apples, birds will flock there from many different forests. The hedgehog shall add a huge palace and then wall it round with 600 towers. To the modern reader of the history of the kings of Britain, the sudden lurch from supposedly earnest historiography to a slew of Vatic imagery from a child wizard might seem a bit bizarre. But to its first readers, the prophecy was taken very seriously. In the words of Julian Crick, in the time of Geoffrey of Monmouth, various forms of vaticination biblical, pagan, Christian, astrological came under scholarly scrutiny. All these, as potential history of the future, underlay medieval and early modern historical thinking. Interestingly, a famous and popular prophecy close to the time of Geoffrey concerned that tragic drowned son of Henry I, William. Edward the Confessor, great-grandfather of William, prophesied of a mysterious re-grafting of a severed bough onto its parent trunk. Lucy Allen Patton explains that this was understood to presage the happy union of the Saxon and Norman royal lines in William the prophecy is now known to be a fabrication created at about the time of the birth of William by or for Henry with the design of strengthening his own claim to the throne. So effective was the popular regard for vaticination and so authoritative were the words of Edward that the desired interpretation was at once accepted. Sir Richard Southern says that the prophecies of Merlin were not considered popular mumbo-jumbo but a matter of grave intellectual concern to serious and practical men. As I mentioned before, The Prophecies of Merlin was published separately, before Geoffrey completed his full-length history of the kings of Britain. The reason he gives for this in The Prophecy's own preface is that Merlin was suddenly popular again. I had not yet reached this point in my story when Merlin began to be talked about very much, and from all sorts of places, people of my own generation kept urging me to publish his prophecies. Chief among them was Alexander, Bishop of Lincoln, a man of the greatest religion and wisdom, as Geoffrey calls him, Saying that for Alexander he has pressed my rustic reed pipe to my lips, and modulating on it in all humility, translated into Latin this work written in a language that is unknown to you. Alexander was another figure caught up in the anarchy, being imprisoned by the new king, then briefly supporting Matilda before reconciling with Stephen. His uncle had been left in charge of England while Henry I had been in Normandy, and so Alexander would have had an understanding of the precarious business of keeping thrones warm. It is possible that he commissioned Geoffrey to write the prophecies in order to encourage British Union in the face of anarchy. Others may have considered it high time for a distinctly British kind of prophet, According to Lucy Allen Patton, because the Saxons and Normans could boast of a monarch who was a saint and a seer, a supporter of the British people would be under pressure to present evidence that the fate of the Britons, no less than that of the Saxons and the Normans, had been foretold by inspired lips. And it is at this point in his history that Geoffrey begins to lose some of his audience. One of his contemporary critics, William of Newber, said, "'It is quite clear that everything this man wrote about Arthur and his successors, or indeed about his predecessors from Vortigern onwards, was made up, partly by himself and partly by others, either from an inordinate love of lying,' all for the sake of pleasing the Britons. Now, ostensibly, Geoffrey's Historia was written for the Anglo-Norman elite, but whether the prophecies are included as a way of advising to them wise governance in a time of chaos, or a way of subversively supporting the Welsh and Breton cause, has been a source of debate for critics for centuries. Of course, symbolic prophecy can be read as support of whatever interpretation the reader most desires. It has long been the special art of seers throughout history to make a prophecy vague enough that it is only a matter of time until it comes true. So let's look at some of the certainties in Merlin's predictions. Michael Curley helpfully divides the prophecies into three, each part referring to a different period. The first section covers the time following Vortigern, the time of the Saxon invasion, and extending all the way to the ending of Geoffrey's Historia as a whole, with the death of Cadwallader in the year 689. The second part of the prophecies lead from there up until the time of King Henry I and includes references to the drowning of his son William and the fighting between Matilda and Stephen. Then the third part refers to a time still in the future for Geoffrey and so can be described as genuine prophecy. In the beginning of the first part, he says that Britain will be saved from invaders by the Boar of Cornwall. This is the representative of King Arthur. It shall lord it over the forests of Gaul and the house of Romulus shall dread its savagery meaning that Arthur will conquer Europe and Rome will tremble at his name. After that, though, the Saxons, the German worm, will return, bringing with them famine and calamity. They will only be defeated by the arrival of the Normans. After William the Conqueror, two more dragons would follow, taken to be William's sons. One dragon will be killed by the sting of envy, a reference to William Rufus, who was killed by a stray and suspicious arrow while hunting. The second dragon, perhaps his brother Robert Shortstockings, returns under the cover of authority in his unsuccessful bid to rule England. But it is the conqueror's fourth son, Henry I, who arrives next in the form of the Lion of Justice. And sure enough, we hear that the lion's cubs will be transformed into saltwater fishes. This, an allusion to the king's son drowning. At which point we reach the period Geoffrey was writing in. Albany will be angry and conspire with the eagle of the broken covenant. For Albany, read Scotland and for the eagle read Matilda, who was known in historical commentaries as an eagle and had suffered a broken covenant when her father's wishes for her to rule after him were ignored. As we've seen, the civil war between Stephen and Matilda was interspersed with invasions from the Scots, and to make matters worse, the Welsh were joining in the fray as well. At this moment in the prophecies, Merlin mentions a character called Cadwallader summoning another called Conan. This Cadwallader shares his name with the long-dead British king, who is the last to appear in Geoffrey's history. In 1136, one of the leaders of the Welsh rebellion was also called Cadwallader, and it is he that Geoffrey seems to be talking about here. Conan was the name of a 6th century Welsh hero, but similarly is also the name of a contemporary figure, the Duke of Brittany, husband of Maud, another one of Henry I's illegitimate children. According to Paul Dalton, the identities of the prophecies Cadwallader and Conan provide the key to one of its central purposes, which was to warn Geoffrey's contemporaries that this future restoration of British rule was actually imminent. Those who read or heard his history could hardly have missed the point that the time prophesied by Merlin when the Britons would regain control of their island was at hand. To his Anglo-Norman readers, this was taken as a dire warning. The prophecies were, as R. R. Davies has said, deeply disconcerting stuff and Arthur, Merlin, and the word Britain were an eminently dangerous combination. They were a deadly threat to English supremacy since they predicted the return of Britain and the Britons to their former glory. Meanwhile, to the Welsh and the Britons, Merlin could be read as offering encouragement, indicating how and when they will overthrow the Norman rule. Arthur, after all, had been a figure in Welsh literature since the writings of Nennius, and here he was mentioned alongside the names of other Welsh redeemers. This interpretation was considered dangerous enough for one of Geoffrey's first translators, Wace, not to include Merlin's prophecies in his own version, fearing retribution if he supported or related anti-Norman sentiments. After all, the Normans were being told they were about to be wiped out by the island's original inhabitants. But the Welsh and the Britons wouldn't be celebrating for long, for after their victory in the prophecies comes a period of sin. The soil will be fruitful beyond man's need, and human beings will fornicate unceasingly. Okay, to be fair, that does sound a bit like celebrating, but after that comes a gradual slide into Apocalypse, a flurry of surreal imagery, such as a man fighting a drunken lion, mixed with astrological catastrophe, the tail of Scorpio will generate lightning and cancer shall fight with the sun, and then finally, in the twinkling of an eye the sea shall rise up and the arena of the wind shall be opened once again, the wind shall do battle together with a blast of ill omen, making their din reverberate from one constellation to another. On the way to this reversion to cosmic chaos, Geoffrey made some actually accurate predictions. Paul Dalton tells us that one of them was about Ireland. The sixth shall throw down the walls of Ireland and transmute its forests into a level plain, which nicely anticipated Henry II's intervention in Ireland more than 15 years after Geoffrey's death. Now, this um, series, we're going to uh, lean into our designated roles a bit. (laughs) So I've I was going to ask you to be in booksellers corner and give us, give us some publishing info of the books that we meet along the way.
0: Oh, well, um, these are, these are, these are books before publishing's a thing. This is when that's no excuse. How would you sell it? Um, I would, I don't think I'd it'd probably be illegal to try and sell this book <laughs> in the, back in the 12th century. Cause I think you, I think it was at that point where anyone who could read was either, was immediately suspicious for starters. <laughs> Or I think the only place you could learn to read was by becoming a monk. You weren't taught language reading outside of religion. And I think also I don't know if this was later or earlier, but if you read if you read without speaking what you were reading aloud, you might as well be worshipping the devil. Right, okay. We're if you if you were that. reading in your head, then you were keeping secrets to yourself. And I think knowledge I see. this is very this is Dark Ages time, this is when People were very suspicious of the learned. So books back before the printing press were sort of masterpiece works by Mm. monks and scholars who would spend their whole lives on a book. And then to copy it, you'd just have to get a team of other monks to illuminate another one and then sell it for a fortune. You know, they were very books being this sort of transportable knowledge were very valuable commodities. So So would
1: you recite it for the benefit of an audience or recite it to yourself to learn
0: it? You probably recite it to yourself, I think. Mm. The idea of having, if you had a large collection of books, you were stupendously wealthy. Yeah. And it was almost just having the book. It was, you know, the very physical representation of knowledge is power. Mm -hmm. Where in order to own this library of books, you know, you might not even have read any of them, but you had enough money to buy them all. So yeah, I think it wasn't a culture that was available to everyone. And these stories would sort of be passed on in oral tradition where most people would hear these stories told in a ballad form or sung or by a storyteller, you know, down the pub or he'd visit mm. your town and you'd pay him a, a groat to tell you a story. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, hence why it changes so much, I guess. The Because emph- mm.
0: I think legends. every every storyteller would have his own spin on it. And I guess, and the prophecies, was, is,
1: the prophecies yeah. themselves, are completely uh, shamelessly open themselves up for that. Well, well done for that, because I completely put you on the spot. <laughs> okay. Um. With uh, as I I like the idea of saying uh, give us the insider info since you're in the trade, as if you might have like had a <laughs> chat with Geoffrey of Monmouth. <laughs> yeah.
0: Very very. Yeah. My 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 hugely relevant skills in the book industry lend themselves well to. Medieval. Medieval literary history.
1: A few years after Geoffrey's publication, John of Cornwall produced a Latin verse edition of the prophecies of Merlin. Henry II was convinced enough by the prophecies to read in them his own doom for the murder of Thomas Becket. During the Tudor dynasty, one of Elizabeth's advisors, John Dee, considered her the living Arthur, making him, an Anglo-Welsh crystal-gazing occultist, the living Merlin. Geoffrey's portrayal of Merlin was critical in binding him to King Arthur, and over the coming weeks, we're going to be seeing how those two are represented for centuries to come. I'm trying to think of other kind of iconic Merlins. There isn't really, I was thinking about this today, there isn't really that one brilliant King Arthur film, is there?
0: Well, there's the Black Cauldron? It's the Disney Black one? Cauldron. The Disney one, yeah. Is that, that's different from The Sword and the Stone. Is it, I think, I always get them confused. Because is the black is the black cauldron? No, it's completely different. It's Sword in the Stone is the one I'm thinking of. I think the black, P- black cauldron as well. Black Cauldron yeah, Black cauldron is also based on it's another Arthurian style legend based on Welsh poetry, also by. Disney. Ah, okay. But Sword in the Stone is the Arthur one, and there's a, there's a version of Merlin in that who's probably quite iconic. There's there was the. It's funny because there's been
1: so many serious King Arthur films attempted and not there was a bit like recent, Narnia actually
0: there was the most recent Guy Ritchie one with David Beckham in it
1: yeah I don't think that's going to last is it <laughs>
0: <laughs> um there was there was the tv show yeah I mean not so much recently King Arthur's not really been in vogue for a while
1: yeah it feels like there should be that classic unmatchable film from the 60s or 70s doesn't it but there just isn't there just isn't one no Cool, well, should we leave it there for Merlin? Yeah, get out Snap. of here, Merlin. Shoo. Get out of here. Well, he'll be back, but in
0: a different outfit. Um, Look at yeah, him surfing. Cool. That's he, a, that's... He, he surfed away on his, on his <laughs> scroll off to help someone else write a, a Word document.
1: Thank you very much for listening to Ear Read This. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, we do have a Patreon page over at patreon.com slash This. Alternatively, if you'd consider leaving us a positive review on iTunes or just sharing the podcast with uh, your friends and family, that would be very much appreciated. Next time, the Plantagenets will be back when we look at Christopher Marlowe's play, Edward II. Till then, happy reading. (coughs)